Welcome to Lottle Media and Queer Conversation. In the virtual studio with me today is Ellen Reeves. You just conducted a survey on behalf of the Monash University in Victoria on LGBTQ domestic violence, um, their survivors and victims and how they are interacting with the prevention system. Yeah, so the intervention order system, which refers, you know, we have lots of names like restraining order, um, apprehensive violence orders, things like that. This is really super interesting because most people don't probably even realize that domestic violence is a threat to our community. We don't know about it. And victims and survivors, it takes them just that much longer to get help. And not only from their own realization that they are suffering or that they are experiencing domestic violence, but also the support system needs to understand this exists. So do you want to run us through about the survey? You surveyed around 40 people and had face-to-face interviews with around 20, which is, I think, a really amazing number for people to come forward and speak about their experience. So, I mean, the aim was quite broad because, um, so a bit of background on me, I've done quite a lot of work in the intervention order space looking at cisgender heterosexual women's experiences and there's quite a bit of research on that but it was really striking to me when doing that work that we really know very little about how lgbtq plus communities are engaging with the law um, when they do decide to seek protection or when they're brought into that system for instance if the police bring them in Um, so very broadly we wanted to understand what do those experiences look like when they engage with that system? And one of the other things that I was really interested in was um, the the occurrence of misidentification, this idea where police misidentify a victim survivor as a perpetrator because there was a lot of anecdotal evidence in Victoria at the time saying that this is a really big issue for queer communities. Um, So I wanted to understand that a bit better And um, half of our participants had experienced that. So that was really significant. Can you share with us a bit of background about domestic violence? What does does it look like? Uh, What what are the numbers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there hasn't been as much research, obviously, on LGBTQ plus communities and their experiences of violence and the rates of violence. But the research that has been done suggests that LGBTQ plus people experience just as high or if not higher rates of domestic and family violence when compared to cisgender heterosexual women, for instance. And we also know that um, LGBTQ plus, you know, that's not one homogenous group. Within that, we see higher risk, for instance, for uh, non-binary folk, for trans folk, um, Women in particular within that have experienced high rates. Um, and, yeah, as you mentioned, the problem is, you know, what we call the the public story of family violence or domestic and family violence. It's this um, pervasive narrative and it's, you know, the narrative we all know well that you have a woman victim and a, and a male perpetrator and they're in a heterosexual relationship. And that's the understanding that most people have of what domestic and family violence is. And then within that, the idea that it's physical violence. So there's not much understanding around 
non-physical forms of violence or coercive control. Um, and yeah, again, like you said at the beginning, that means that LGBTQ plus victim survivors, they face that initial barrier of even recognising that what they're experiencing is abuse. And especially when you have the perpetrator that says, you know, oh, you won't be believed because you're not this type of woman or you don't fit into this category. But then when when um, LGBTQ plus victim survivors do recognise it, they might not feel that confidence that the law is there to protect them or that support services are there to protect them. Um, and that's um, a major challenge to accessing protection. I think one of the one of the good things that did come out of this study is that we saw that a lot of our participants actively sought help from the law. And, you know, unfortunately those experiences weren't particularly positive, but I think it was good to see that there were these these um, victim survivors that said, I can reach out to the law for help, that, you know, the law might help me, which I think is a shift to what we were seeing maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, but I'll also just add, you know, in terms of experiences of domestic and family violence, um, LGBTQ plus people experience many of the same sort of uniform, the headline types of family violence, such as physical violence, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, um, you know, stalking and all of that. But they also can experience that in very unique ways, such as, um, you know, having transition-related hormones um, or medication withheld, um, threatening to, to out the victim survivor to their family, to their workplace, to their community. Um, so it manifests in these really unique ways. And we also see quite higher rates of family of origin violence, um, that being the biological family of the victim survivor um, who might um, reject that victim survivor due to their gender and or sexual identity, which manifests in this form of family violence. And you said earlier um, that the rates for um, heterosexual um, numbers in, in domestic violence are probably similar or in the LGBT community might be even slightly higher. I, I think it would make a lot of sense to assume they are higher because a lot of it would not be reported, mm. I would I would think. So yeah, with, mm, and and so with this background you you looked at a particular section, I guess, of intervention and you know how that works for the heterosexual community and compared to how it works to the LGBT community and what did you research? What were the key findings? Um, so one of the things that I found was, you know, and this is sort of expanding on what I've just said, LGBTQ plus people were engaging with the intervention order system in a range of different contexts. Um, so, for instance, it, um, we had a few participants that were experiencing family of origin violence, um, for instance, from siblings. Uh, we also had participants who were experiencing coercive control and just didn't know what to do to get out of that relationship. We also had participants who maybe the relationship itself hadn't been particularly abusive, but when um, when that relationship has broken down and maybe they've decided to leave the relationship, they've experienced violence upon separation. Um, so there are similar trends there um, to what we know generally about how these systems are used. Um, but it, I think it's interesting because we just haven't had this data before in regards to, you know, in what scenarios are LGBTQ plus people seeking help from the law. Um, 
As I mentioned earlier, we found really high rates of participants being listed as respondents. So that means that they were identified as a perpetrator. Um, and this is despite, you know, the the study was only open to victim survivors. So everyone identified as a victim survivor. So there's sort of two ways in which that can happen. The first is um, through police intervention. And, and this is really important. So it might happen where the police attend a scene. And for instance, if you have um, two men that are the parties involved and one's a predominant victor, victim and one's a predominant perpetrator, the police might have a lot of trouble in understanding because normally police, you know, they have to lean on assumptions when they're responding to these incidences. And in this case, those assumptions might not necessarily work because they don't have that stereotypical man perpetrator, woman victim. And so they take these really problematic shortcuts such as going, okay, well, who's the more masculine party there? They're going to be the perpetrator. Um, and that's it really lacks that nuanced response and nuanced understanding of gender and sexuality. Um, and we also see this play out for um, we had some trans participants that were misidentified as well. And they really, um, you know, there was sort of this idea, I guess, police responses playing into this perception of trans people as deviant and that sort of transphobia really coming out. Um, so it's all about that public story of domestic violence again and who the system sees as real victims and it, um, that narrative can really impede on their ability to, you know, take the time to investigate a bit more, you know, do a risk assessment and work out who it is that needs protection in this scenario. Um, and the other way in which this happens is through private applications. So when you're... Um, when you're seeking an intervention order, you don't have to go to the police. You can go to the, the court system and apply for an application. And we were seeing that um, compared to the general um, statistics across the state, it seems that LGBTQ plus people are doing this more often um, than the rest of the population, which to me suggests that they're actively trying to bypass the police because that's not um, an authority that they trust and, you know, thinking about that in the context of the the historical relationship and a very violent relationship from the police onto LGBTQ plus communities. Um, and so that really plays a role in trust and confidence in the police. One of your headers you used in your report, it says, can't you girls work it out? And that really resonated with me. I just thought I can just hear this happening. What's your take on that? Yeah, it was it was interesting and we saw this play out with a range of different participants. So we had that. That was a um, a lesbian woman who, when she reported the violence to the police, it was this dismissive, um, you know, yeah, can't you girls work this out? And it's, that plays on gendered assumptions, you know, catfighting and, you know, all that. And we, we saw it play out with men as well. Um, for instance, one gay man, was told by the police to to man up, you know, you shouldn't have to come to us, you shouldn't have to come to the police because you're a man and he's a man and you should be able to deal with it yourself. Um, and that is just not the message we want to be sending to queer communities when they do try to seek help because it reinforces that message that the law is not there to protect them. 27% of all participants had access to an LGBTIQ liaison officer and, 
you know, many participants who did access these offices had positive experiences, but the problem is that they are just inaccessible and general duties police officers aren't always telling um, people they're interacting with that that service is available. And some people um, did get in contact with this service, but then um, their case was trumped by a general policing issue. So there's, in regards to the liaison officers, there's a huge issue with resourcing and also where they sit within the organisational structure of Victoria Police in that their specialist role will often get trumped by general duties. In regard to training, absolutely. If if we, you know, if those officers aren't readily available, we need to see all Victoria Police officers have a, a stronger understanding of LGBTQ plus domestic and family violence so that they are able to respond in a way that is empathetic, that is culturally safe and affirming. Um, so, yeah, there needs to be across-the-board training. But also, I mean, one of the recommendations that we make in the report is that I guess in this space we often sort of rely on education and training to say we need more education and training, that will fix this. But cultural change within the police and other institutions is really hard and sometimes it feels like beating your head against a brick wall. And one of the recommendations that we made is that Victoria Police needs to think about other things that they can do to improve responses. For example, you know, what what can we do in the recruitment stage? We do evaluate for um, mental health issues, other things like that, but what if we evaluated for homophobic views or, you know, sexist views, things like that, um, so that we can actually stop police officers um, who do hold those views from coming into the system. Um, and there are many police officers, of course, that are not like that, but also they don't know what to do in this situation because they don't have the proper training. It hasn't been ongoing training. Um, so there's a huge opportunity there. Victoria has a very good track record in funding LGBT-related projects. If any state will take this on and take those ports serious, it will be Victoria, which I believe is a leading state in LGBT uh, issues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, we've got quite a few community-controlled LGBTQ plus services here, um, I think more so than any other state in Australia, um, which is fantastic to see, but I think it also goes to show, you know, so many participants weren't able to access these services. So even with us having maybe the most, um, it's still not enough and the services that we do have are in critical need of long-term funding. One of the really striking things in the study was that, you know, I spoke about earlier how participants felt that they could turn to the law, but the reality was that many participants would have preferred an alternative option to the law. They said, oh, I only, you know, I only called the police because who else do you call? These participants didn't want legal engagement and I think it's really important to listen to them when they're saying that and think about rather than improving this system, although, of course, it does need to be improved, we also really need to focus on what, a non-legal, non-punitive response to LGBTQ plus family violence looks like um, and thinking about how that can be community-led um, and empowering um, for LGBTQ plus communities. Thorn Harbour Health is a fantastic organisation um, that was, 
you know, a sort of a, a public health angle that came out of the AIDS pandemic that has now really shifted towards um, general health and wellbeing, but also LGBTQ plus domestic and family violence. And they run counselling sessions and group therapy sessions for perpetrators, for instance. I think that sort of thing is a really good solution. Um, but I think one of the problems we have is that people will only often become engaged with those sort of programs when the court has ordered it. Um, so I feel like we need to be getting um, people into those programs before the law becomes involved. Um, I think that that's really important. But I think treating this as a public health issue and as a community issue and really focusing on community prevention as well um, before any of the violence even happens, um, I think that that's really important. I think it will come down to visibility, you know, that everyone, not only the LGBT community, but mainly I would think um, the heterosexual community is aware of that this happens to LGBTQ couples. The allies are the ones that most likely would be able to support, such as neighbors and family members, etc. But it would just never cross their mind that that could happen to a gay couple. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, and so visibility is really important. 